David said longingly. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. And they brought it to David. But David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. The three warriors did these things. A couple of years ago, I tackled the story of Uriah in my episode, Uriah Kill the Messenger. And that story led to me spending some time looking at the two accounts in the Bible of the warriors of David. There are two passages, one in 2 Samuel and one in 1 Chronicles, that give a list of David's famous three, and also his 30 warriors. Uriah is listed among the 30. The two passages are very close to one another, with only minor variances. But Uriah's presence on these lists is only one of the things that makes them so extraordinary. They are extremely ancient texts, and for that reason are notoriously difficult to translate. Some scholars have suggested that the text seems so ancient that of all the passages related to the life of David, this one may have the best chance of having been composed near to the lifetime of David himself, around 1000 BCE. One of the things that makes it seem like that is the nature of the little stories, the vignettes that are told about a few of these famous warriors. They are these short, pithy little tales that you can just imagine people sharing and repeating about famous warriors in their own times. And you know me, there is nothing that I love more than a good story. People need to know some of these. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.5 Three Men and a Pitcher Things were not going well. Just as the harvest was beginning this year, the Philistines had come pouring out into the Israelite countryside. A large party of them had set up camp in the valley of Rephaim and had gone out raiding from there. 
they would descend on some town or village and set up a garrison by the gates. They would then systematically go through all the homes and farms of the people who lived there, shaking them down for anything of value. And there wasn't much of anything that David could do about it. To most people, he was little more than a gang leader running a protection racket at this point in his career, though some were beginning to look to him as a legitimate leader. But whether he was one or the other, there was little that he could do when the Philistines were abroad in the land in such numbers. Maybe someday David would be able to take over a high, fortified position like perhaps the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. From such a defensible position, he'd be able to organize an effective militia that could repel such incursions. But he had no such resources at the moment. All he had was his little war band of about 30 men. It was a small force, but they were mighty men. So David did what he could. He withdrew quite some distance from the Philistine encampments and went to ground at the cave at Adullam. He called on all of his men to join him there. Once they had gathered, the hope was that they could exploit some weakness to chase the invaders back out of the land. It was a somewhat desperate plan, but David had few other options. What David did have, however, was an extraordinary band of fighting men to stand at his side. And among them all, there were none who were mightier than the three men who were just now arriving at Adullam. They were, without a doubt, the most famous of all his fighters. So famous, in fact, that you only needed to speak of the three, and everybody knew exactly who you were talking about. The first and most famous among them was the tall man striding a few paces before the other two. His name was Josheb Bashabeth. He stood nearly six feet tall and wore a bronze breastplate and heavy leather belt. And as he took his long strides, he swung his massive spear beside him, as if it were a walking stick. This was only fitting, for the spear might have been more famous than the man himself, and rightly so. After all, this had been the spear that he had brandished when he stood alone 
and was attacked by 800 men. Well, there were some who said that it was only 300, but those who had actually met the man and seen him fight did not doubt that he could have killed many more than 800. However many it had been, Josheb Bashabeth had stood before them alone, armed only with his shield and his famous spear, and he had fought them all off. Many died, and the rest fled. Ever since, the legend of this man had spread far and wide. In fact, most people didn't even call him Josheb Bathshebeth anymore. They called him Bathshebeth Spears. And his enemies trembled when they heard that name. Just behind him walked Eleazar, the son of Dodo. He was a shorter man, stocky and heavily built. He had a thick black beard, but almost no hair on the top of his head. More than anything else, he gave the impression of being a completely immovable object. If he stood in your way, you found another direction to move. That's what he was most famous for doing, <laughs> standing in people's way. One time, when he fought together with David and the others against the Philistines, the Philistines were triumphant. Or at least everybody thought they were. The entire Israelite force fled before their more numerous foes. But Eleazar simply refused to flee. He was unwilling to give to the Philistines even an inch of territory. He stood there, and he defied them one by one as they came at him. He fought until his arm felt lifeless at his side, and the blood dripped down his sword until his hand stuck to the hilt of it. That was how he earned his nickname. Eleazar's Sticky Sword, they called him. On that day, Eleazar turned defeat into victory. The retreating Israelites eventually came to their senses and turned around to come to Eleazar's aid. But by the time they came back, all that was left for them to do was strip the dead of their arms and armor. The third man, who walked but a pace behind him, was Shammah, son of Aji. And Shammah had earned his own nickname as well. He got it on yet another occasion when the Israelite warriors were in full rout. Come to think of it, 
That had happened fairly often over the years. That time it had been Shammah, who had decided to stand his ground at all costs. And his mates never let him forget that he had taken that stand in the midst of a field of lentils that was just ready to be harvested. That's right. Of all the things that he could have decided to defend at the risk of his life, he chose a field of lentils. But he had triumphed that day, and everyone knew the story. So those were David's three most famous warriors, Bathsheba's spears, Eleazar's sticky sword, and Shammah, the lentil lover. Everyone was happy and relieved to see them arrive at the encampment. But the three themselves were not happy. They had brought with them bad news, the kind that they knew that David wouldn't want to hear. David had set up his headquarters in the depths of the cave. He was busy back there, planning with his closest advisors and dealing with the messages and rumors that he heard from people who were coming and going. But when he heard that the three had arrived, he insisted that he would speak to no one else until they had been brought before him. He welcomed them warmly, clasping them close to his breast. And then he asked them what news they had heard as they traveled. And so they told him. As they had passed through the region, some 10 miles to the east, several of the local farmers had come to them and told them what they'd heard. They said that the Philistines had occupied and were plundering some of the more important towns in the area. Like what towns? David wanted to know. That was a part of the countryside he cared deeply about. And Eleazar's sticky sword answered him grimly, we have heard that they have made a garrison at, at Bethlehem. David reacted pretty much as they had expected him to. They knew, everybody knew that David had come from Bethlehem, that his father and his brothers still lived there. He raged against the Philistines for attacking his hometown. He wept for all of the people he knew there, who would be suffering from the raids and the abuse. But then David started talking about his memories about the place, and it all started to get a, a little pathetic. 
He talked about the bread that his mother used to make and how he had never tasted the like of it any place else in all of his life. And then he got on about the water. Oh, there is a well at the very gates of Bethlehem, he said. And the water that you draw from that well is so clear and so fresh that if you took but one sip of it, you would be transported into the very presence of the gods. And then David fell silent for a while before muttering, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. The three looked at each other and silently agreed that David might have just finally lost it. They quickly filed out of the chamber to give him space to feel sorry for himself over what was plainly a terrible blow to his pride. They would meet and talk amongst themselves later. When they sat together around an evening cook fire a couple of hours later, it did not take long for the warriors to come around to discussing David's emotional display. They had always loved the man and felt honored to be in his service. And they appreciated how he had been willing to be vulnerable in front of them they all felt as if they wanted to do something to lift his mood and give him some hope. It did not take long for them to come up with a plan that most people would have considered to be utter foolishness. Two days later, Bathsheba's spears, Eliezer's sticky sword, and Shammah, the lentil lover, found themselves crouching in the undergrowth and looking out to see the gate of the little town of Bethlehem. They could see quite clearly how still it lay under Philistine occupation. A couple of tents had been set up over by the town well, whose water David had so praised. There were seven Philistines visible, including the one who stood by the gate, harassing everyone who tried to pass through. There had to be at least a few more inside the tents. Well, that hardly seems fair. Eleazar's sticky sword whispered to his mates. They only outnumber us three or four to one. I mean, I almost feel sorry for them. Well, don't feel too sorry. Bathsheba's spears, 
who had never had much of a sense of humor, replied, All of them that I see are wearing pretty good quality scale armor, and I count seven, eight, nine iron-tipped spears leaning against that wall over there. We had better not just go stumbling in. We're going to need some strategy. Let's withdraw and think about it. But he had barely finished whispering before Shama, the lentil lover, got up and just strode into the clearing. He stood there for a moment in full view of the Philistines. They blinked at him in surprise until he suddenly shouted out something horrible about Dagon, who was said to be their favorite god. The hapless Philistines were immediately insulted. Several of them shouted out in rage and grabbed their spears and raced off after Shammah, who was already tearing away towards the east. At least six or seven of them headed off after him, which left about seven still standing near the gate. In the bushes, Bathsheba's spears and Eleazar's sticky sword looked at each other and shrugged. The one brandished his spear, while the other unsheathed his sword. This was going to be easier than they had thought. Shama raced ahead of his pursuers. He was not familiar with the ground here in Bethlehem. And he was casting about desperately, trying to find a place to take his stand. He was looking, frankly, for a lentil field. There had been a reason why he had chosen to defend such a thing before. And no, it wasn't because he loved lentils so much. It was because the bushy stalks of the plants had allowed him to hide from his pursuers and strike out at them when they weren't ready for him. But there weren't a lot of lentils grown at Bethlehem. Bethlehem was famous for its bread, and the people mostly planted barley. And so Shammah finally plunged into a large barley field. The tall, thin stalks didn't really hide him from the Philistines, but they did impede their approach. As he turned and drew his weapon, he saw how they struggled to make an organized attack. He smiled and taunted them again with observations about their fishy god. Was it a coincidence that the field that he chose, seemingly at random, was not just any field? What would he have thought had he known that this field belonged to his king's family? And not only that, 
it played an important role in the lore of the family. At least, the story they told had it that it was on this very field that David's great-grandfather Boaz had first met his great-grandmother Ruth. More than that, it likely would have blown his mind to know that someday, uh, a thousand years into the future, a simple stone manger would be placed upon this same piece of ground to feed the cattle. And it would be in just the right place, at just the right time, to allow a woman who had no shelter, just after giving birth, a place to lay her child. But of course, Shema had no opportunity to consider any such things as he prepared to meet the spears of the men who were coming at him. By the time Shema returned to his friends, having fertilized the barley field with generous amounts of Philistine blood, they had pretty much finished with the ones who had stayed behind. Most had fled. One lay writhing in pain on the ground. An Eliezer's sticky sword was holding one by his feet and lowering him head first into the well. It seemed that the Philistines had confiscated the rope and hidden it somewhere so as to control access to the well for the local populace. And so Eleazar was resorting to a simpler method of filling up the small clay pot that the three had brought with them. Fortunately for one very relieved Philistine, Eleazar did not lose his grip. And, after a restoring meal provided by the grateful inhabitants of Bethlehem, the three were soon on their way back to find David at the cave of Adullam. David's reaction to being presented with a pitcher of water soon became almost as famous as the tale of the exploit that had brought it to him. He acted surprised, as if he had never thought it possible that anyone might act on what he had said about longing to taste that water. But the thing with David was that he was quite the actor, and you could never tell if he truly meant what he was saying. Perhaps he really did not expect anyone to attempt something quite so foolish. But it could also be that he was specifically looking to provoke some kind of exploit that would inspire all of his men at a time when things were looking rather bleak. But whatever David really thought when he first spoke, there was no question of the honor 
that he gave to the men who returned from that well. He did not drink the water, didn't even taste it. Instead, he poured it out on the ground and everyone immediately understood what that meant. He had made it into a libation, a gift to his God, Yahweh. And in doing that, he elevated the feat that had been accomplished by his three greatest warriors to near divine status. He ensured that nobody would ever forget what they had done. The story of the three is so ancient that it does offer many challenges to translators. And on top of that, the two accounts one in 2 Samuel 23 and the other in 1 Chronicles 11, do not entirely jive with each other. Nor is it entirely clear in the Hebrew whether the three who attacked the well are the same three who are at the top of the list of warriors. But, as I usually do, I selected the best narrative elements and told it in the way that made the best story. In doing that, I mostly went with the version of the story in Samuel, though I hope you noticed the references that I made to the other version. Of course, these are legendary accounts, and of course they grew in the telling, as all legends do. But I am intrigued by the possibility that these men might have actually existed and had some pretty amazing adventures. These ancient Hebrews certainly had a way of telling a tale. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that Hollywood never got its hands on this one and turned it into a blockbuster. Ah well, Mr. Tarantino, I await your call. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod. And the mood music for this episode is Hymn of Freedom by Frank Schroeter. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, 
and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.